I don't know how many of you are, might be familiar with the game show Jeopardy. Anybody like Jeopardy? A few hands, okay, so some are familiar. One of the things that sticks out about that game show is that it's a trivia question and answer, but the, but the questions are framed as answers, and the answer is framed as a question. This is core to the show, right? Like, you, you, you don't get the correct answer unless you say what is or who is or whatever that is. As we're continuing our study of Mark, I would like to suggest that Jesus is, in essence, posing a very big question to us as an answer. We ended last week, the tail end of chapter 11, and he's being confronted about, by what authority are you doing these things? What things? Cleansing the temple. Like he owns the place, because he does. Teaching, everything else he's doing, his whole ministry. And he didn't give the people that asked him, the leaders at the time, a direct answer. But I would suggest he actually gives giving us an answer. And it continues as we carry on into chapter 12 this morning. He's continuing to respond to the challenge to his authority. This is the unexpected king, and he's in charge. And he's doing this challenging, he's continuing to confront this challenge in front of a full audience. And he's doing it in two main ways in, in chapter 12 that we're going to study today. One is a story right up front. That's verses 1 through 12. And then the balance is in the form of questions, questions and answers for the, uh, the chapter 12, verse 13 through 37. Two of those questions come from very narrow-minded assailants. One comes from a semi-interested observer, and one comes from Jesus himself. So one of the things I, I try to do, uh, we try to do when we're preaching the word, when we're re-speaking it to you, is to try to do it in the way that the word itself comes to us. So I thought it would be fun to how many questions can I pack in this sermon? And I actually have a couple helpers out there among you who are going to be documenting just for fun, all right? But we're going to get right into this. Jesus is answering this overall question. The subtext behind everything here is the title for today. Why believe me? Why believe me? He is going to unequivocally affirm who he is, and that is God and man. However unexpected he may seem, he has absolute authority to say and do everything that he is saying and doing. So let's start Mark 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. 
And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Ouch. How are we to understand this? Do you remember what a parable is? It is a story that conveys deeper meaning and often very memorably, very sharply. Remember, who is Jesus speaking to here? It's continuing from chapter 11. Remember, sometimes the chapter breaks don't help us. So read through, read through them. Chapter 11, 27, he's speaking to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, religious leaders of the day, who would have been respected and well-known, and they were challenging him about his authority. They should have been the ones pointing people to God and who is standing in front of them, but God himself. And they're raging against him. And as we see, they're walking well-worn paths of their forebears, are they not? They're following after the people chosen by God who have long been rejecting his grace to get their own way. Look at this. Do you see the rich imagery of the vineyard in this passage? It harkens back to Isaiah chapter 5. In John 15, Jesus talks about, I am the vine. The vineyard is Israel. It's God's people. The owner is God. The tenants are the religious leaders, the ones he's speaking to here. Servants are all the faithful prophets that God has sent all this time throughout biblical history. Jesus is describing the story, and the, the servants come, and they, God, the owner, expects fruit. Verse 2 says he expects fruit. It echoes the story of the fig tree. Remember that? Jesus came looking for the fruit. There was no fruit. The fruit here speaks of people of faith who love and follow the Lord. Again, the story is very, very rich here. And then, of course, there's the heir and the beloved son. Did you catch that phrase, the beloved son? Where have we heard beloved son before? Chapter 1. When Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved son. Chapter 9, when Jesus was transfigured, what did God say to the other uh, disciples who were there? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then how about these tenants? Can you imagine more horrible tenants? I mean, literally, there is nothing in how the tenants behave here toward the owner, nor to any of his servants, that remotely commends any of them. Is there? In, in fact, when the heir himself comes, they reject him in the most drastic way. Come, let us kill him. Genesis chapter 37. When the brothers seek to do away with Joseph. It's the exact same words. Come, let us kill him. John chapter 1, Jesus says, or the apostle John says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do in verse 9? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is a judgment parable. 
And there's judgment being described here. There's no other way to account for those words. But do you notice that that doesn't happen? Do you remember how Eric was teaching us last week that we live in a tension between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? Jesus is here and he's inaugurating the kingdom. And there is both mercy and judgment in play, but not fully. This happens here. There is both mercy and judgment in play. There's a tension here. We see powerful glimpses of the judgment. He will come and destroy the tenants. Did you know that in AD 70, Jerusalem was raised, flattened, the temple destroyed. Many of these religious leaders, their parties ended. That was it. There was no more history after that. That was, that was a partial. We're going to get a little bit more in chapter 13 about these things. But also, do you see the glimpse of mercy? He's giving the vineyard to others. What? He's giving the vineyard to others. And then do you see how Jesus switches metaphors? He goes from beloved son to messianic capstone. Okay, that's, that's intentional too, because that's a reference to Psalm 118, 22, and 23. This is the Lord's doing. He again is asserting his absolute authority over this entire process. God's sovereign plan is so gracious, so unexpected. No wonder Jesus says, and the psalmist said, it is what? Marvelous in our eyes. But did you note the religious leader's response to this in verse 12? They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the people. In chapter 11, it said they didn't answer his question. Why? Because they feared the people. I wonder what the core problem is. He had spoken of this, of this thing of them. It was a judgment peril. Again, it's exposing their true motives. It's exposing what they really value. And so what did they do? It says they left him and went away. Hard to imagine a more frightening set of words. Unchanged, unmoved, unconvicted. They stay precisely on the well-worn path that Jesus himself just described. And in a matter of days, they will fulfill their role as the killers of the beloved son. Glad we're not them. Not so fast. Not so fast. Do you see yourself as a tenant, as a steward, if you don't, let me ask you this. What do you have that you did not receive? Isn't God right to expect something from you? Or do you see your life as your own? Family, I know these are hard words. We need to hear them. Because there's grace in them. There's grace in them. We'll think, well, well hold on. We don't mock or abuse God's messengers, do we? Maybe you just disregard. Maybe you, maybe you just think little of them or you don't pay attention. When Jesus is speaking to you, he's speaking to you through his word. He's speaking to you through me, re-speaking it. He's speaking to you in any number of ways. Are you listening? It's just so sad the way they, the religious leaders responded. It says they left him and they went away. Went away to what? Where are they going to go? What other hope is there to have? This is, 
the son, the beloved son, the heir, the king, who mercifully, by the way, has come and is speaking to them because the father has sent them. What other grace will they turn to? What other hope can they turn to? There is none. Acts 4, chapter uh, chapter 4, 11 and 12 says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But sadly, other leaders of the day arrive on the scene now to make their attempt to undermine and discredit this alleged king of kings. They're literally embodying the parable he just told. So here we go. Let's read how they try to reject his authority and take down the air. What's this first set of challenging questions that come from unfaithful and wicked tenants? Let's see. Verse, uh, verse 13 in chapter 12. Keep reading. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Do you remember who the Pharisees and the Herodians are? These are the religious and the political leaders of the day. And they're odd bedfellows, to say the least. They wouldn't normally be working together. But apparently, these chief priests, scribes, and elders who had been talking to them sent them and said, can you try to trap this guy? Because that's what they tried to do. That was what they were doing. And how do they start? Flattery. Tee him up with some flattery. He reads right through it. And they bring a carefully crafted devious question. It's actually a known formulation. It's called a no-win question or a loaded question. Do you know what a loaded question is? Let me give you an example. When did you stop beating your wife? That's a, that's a no-win question. You answer the question, you lose across the board. There's no way you win that. This is the point of their question. Here's why. Here's what they said. Do we pay taxes or not? Think, okay, that's pretty obvious. I got it. If Jesus says yes, it's to support the, uh, it shows that he supported the hated sign of subjection to Rome. Oh, that would get him in trouble with the, uh, with the mob, basically. The people would have risen up against him. If he, he said yes, it would show that he supported insurrection and treason and would have got him in trouble with the Roman rulers. This was why they were trying to trap him. Jesus reads right through it, directly confronts their hypocrisy. He says, why put me to the test? That's the exact same word as when the devil was tempting him. As Jesus tends to do, he turns to an object lesson and he asks them, bring me a denarius. Now, I love that he asked them to bring it to him. I don't know if he had one or not. 
You bring me one. Pockets full of graven images and false gods. They bring it to him. And he asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And the word inscription is also engraving, in essence. And that's, we're familiar with coins, right? We, 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 we have them. I don't, I don't use them anymore. <laughs> um, we do have them. And they said to him, Caesar's. And then what does Jesus say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God's the things that are God's. This is not merely a clever retort. It is famous, and it's famous for a reason. But it's not just clever. Jesus is massively reorienting. He's massively reasserting who's in charge and the way of the world. And he's blowing away these little narrow-minded grids and expectations and finite presumptions. He's overthrowing them. The coin bears whose image? Caesar's. Then who does it belong to? Caesar. We, as his very creation, bear whose image? God's. Then who do we belong to? This is the point. This is the point. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. No wonder they walked away marveling. Like this, he's saying, guys, can I just step back from this for a second? The point of this passage is not to tell us how to respond to government politics. However, we would be remiss if we didn't say at least a brief word in that regard. So let me say this. And let me say this. I want to say this in terms of the scope and the spirit of our interaction with government and politics. Our duty to government pales in comparison to our duty to our creator and our redeemer. It is fractional the way this rendered to Caesars is there is no, I, I thought about trying to put an image of the proportion. There is no image of the proportion. It's ridiculous. Render to Caesar this. Yes, pay taxes. He did. He said pay taxes. And render to God's everything else, which is your whole life, by the way. This is what we do. So our commitment, our involvement, our engagement needs to be seen as fractional. That is important, but it also is obedient. And then in terms of the spirit, it's submissive. Why? Out of honor to God. Because this is the king of kings who's describing how things are to be. So we walk in obedience to him and his kingdom. We are submissive out of honor to God, hoping in him, not in the means. So we don't get lathered up when our particular party is not in power or government's not working the way we expected. You know, Mark was written in the time of the Romans and the Romans the Roman Christians were the first ones that had this gospel when Nero was ruling them. We got some bad government and leaders. We don't have Nero. And yet these are the words. If you want to read more about it, I put some verses up there. Romans 13, uh, 1 Peter 2. Please go read these passages because they will inform us in family, in our area in particular. We need this truth and we need to live by it. We need to humble ourselves in a spirit of submission, but also commitment to the Lord. Because he's also going to say, and we're going to get to this passage that comes next. It's about love, isn't it? It's about loving your neighbor out of honor to God. It isn't about being right and getting our way. 
This is the spirit that should define us and should guide us. How did these leaders respond to Jesus? It says they marveled at him. And I'm going to say, not because they just got hosed, although they did, right? But I think it was genuine amazement. And there's some irony because what did he just quote from Psalms? It's marvelous in our eyes. And here they are marveling, whether they wanted to or not. But wait, who else is coming to challenge him? More wicked tenants with more faithless questions. Verse 18, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Does Jesus pull any punches here? <laughs> no, he directly confronts their error in doctrine and experience. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Boy, I'm glad we're not them. Right? Well. That's a Peter, that's so good. Peter said, that's a loaded question. Yes, it is. And here's the next one. Do you know the scriptures and the power of God? What is your frame of reference, your grid for what is true and beautiful and good and right? Yourself? Others? The culture? Government? Why should you believe any of those things and bet your life on it? Remember what Jesus is saying to, to you, to all of us in this whole account is the big major subtext question, why believe me? Let me tell you why Jesus is saying. Resurrection, which he takes as a given, is not like life now. That is the point. It's like an acorn is to an oak tree. Again, Jesus is exploding narrow-minded preconceptions and grids for a far more expansive and glorious reality. That's what he's saying here. Can I just share a bit personally? I have always struggled a little bit with this passage, even before I was married, but even, especially now, 20, we're, April, we're going to celebrate 25 years being married. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Um, but I've always struggled with it because it's like we, we naturally jump right to the negative perception, which is, wait, wait, we're not going to be married? I mean, I can't wrap my head around that. Honestly, I can't. 
But here's what I think the scripture is getting at. When an acorn is a mighty oak, does it miss its acornness? Does it miss that little brown nutcap that it had? Right? I mean, the, and I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to demean the reality. Let me get... I lost everybody on that one. It's like, okay, let me try again. The butterfly, the butterfly doesn't miss being wedged in a cocoon as a larva, does it? After it's a butterfly. This is the point. Resurrection life, eternal life, the full realization and experience of the kingdom of God will be incomprehensibly good and beautiful and full, better than we can imagine. This is the point, not what we don't have. It's like colors we've never seen. We can't put our minds around it. They should have known this. The religious leaders and teachers, they should have known it, which is why he confronted them so harshly. Do you not know the scriptures or the power of God? He confronts their failure. And he specifically and fully undermines what is an absolutely untenable and foolish position. There is no resurrection. Are you crazy? It's essentially what he's saying to them. May it never be said of us that we know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. May it never be said of us. The next question seems finally, finally we seem to have a genuine question. It's coming, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Finally, do you recognize that Jesus is quoting again here from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 and 5. It's a well-known Jewish confession that's known as the Shema. And is as familiar to them as the Lord's Prayer is to us today. They would have immediately recognized, they probably recited it daily. After all of his upending inadequate frameworks and expectations and narrow-minded grids, do you see here how Jesus brings one forward now? Here is his grid. Here is his framework. Here is the expectation. He's answering the question, which law is the most important? There were 600 some odd laws just in the first five books 
This was a common question the rabbis debated all the time. He went straight to it and he answered it directly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is heart? It is what it sounds like. It's our emotions, our soul, our spirit, our conscience, our mind, our intellect, our intelligence, our strength, our physicality, our beings. It's all of it. It's all of it as a whole. Ferguson describes this as devotion of our whole lives for the duration of our lives. I love that quote. Devotion of our whole lives for the duration of our lives. And do you see how loving God like this is inseparable from also loving your neighbor as yourself? This is why Jesus links them. The guy didn't ask what were the top two commandments, but Jesus said, these, this is the answer. What are the most important is these. They're connected, they're inseparable. Let me ask you this, but have you done them? Can you do them? We all know deep down, oh no, well, we try. We try, don't we? But is Jesus getting it? Is this transactional? No, it isn't. Remember, we were talking about that a few weeks ago. Jesus is trying to explode transactional views, this relationship over transaction. No wonder he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is literally right then doing these things. Do you see that? He is loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind. He's loving us as himself. Like in a way we can't even wrap our heads around. He's literally embodying this obedience. What is impossible with man to do all these things on our own, we can't do it, is being made possible by God himself as he comes. And now he directly asserts his identity in the question that he now poses to everyone. I'm going to ask the questions now. Verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Where have we heard this terminology, the son of David? Anybody remember from recent? Blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus was crying out from the roadside. Have mercy on me, son of David. It was a clear reference to this psalm, Psalm 110, and a clear reference. Everyone at that time would have known that the son of David is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the anointed one, the one hoped for. However, most would have thought of him, the Messiah, in human terms, not as fully God. So Jesus is coming at this. So let me help you go back to this very familiar psalm. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. He clearly affirms when he quotes it, by the way, David, moved by the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful. This is how the scripture is formed. David wrote this psalm. The Holy Spirit inspired him. That's why it's the word of God. That's true of all scripture. Why is David calling a man a son in his line, Lord. That's what Jesus is asking. Because he's calling a man, a son in his line, God. That was supposed to make Hegas explode because that's what he's, he's saying. It. The Messiah is God, man. That's why. 
That's why David is, is saying that. Again, Jesus is upending finite expectations. And again, how does the passage end? It just says the throng heard him gladly. So let me close our message this morning, which has been packed full of questions. How are we doing? Alyssa, Claire, how many questions have you guys got? Ballpark, you guys working on the counts? I'm curious. I'm guessing like 70. I don't know, I might be wrong, but. 88. 88. Alyssa, how about, would you? I know, I got more too, so you're gonna keep going. Alyssa, what would you have? 57. Perfect, somewhere between there. Lots of questions. But here's the deal. Let me close the question with one more. The throng heard them gladly. Do we hear him gladly this morning? And not only will we hear him, will we respond? That's the question. Here's the big question here, the family is, why believe me? Jesus is asking us, why believe me? And he's giving us very, very good reasons to. Look back over the whole scope of what we just read this morning. Do you see... Do you see the sheer grace of God? I don't want us to miss it. They're hard stories. The parable is a judgment parable, but do you see the grace of God in it? Why do I say that? Because how many times does he keep sending servants to these wicked tenants? I mean, why isn't it just, boom, you're done? Why? Because it's grace. A grace that goes so far as, I'm going to send them my son, finally. They'll respect him. No, and he knows they're not, but he comes anyway. Jesus tells the story knowing he's going to walk it out at the end of this week. There is grace in that family. It is grace, but we will miss it if we don't see we need it. God's long suffering is beyond our imagination to the point of sending his own beloved son. Do you see the sheer grace and love of God even though Jesus' response to these hypocritical, narrow-minded, disingenuous questioners should have known him. They should have received him. They should have been proclaiming him as king. And here he is in his humility. Talk about kneeling and washing feet. He's coming to these people who don't deserve it and he's answering their questions and helping them to see and helping us to see. It's not just then, it's now. It was interesting when we finally got the somewhat genuine question what is, the, what is the most important law? It is, it's only a start. It's only a start to recognize him. This is why he says, the one, when the run scribe asks that genuine question, Jesus tells him when he sees him answer, you're not far from the kingdom, but he's not in it. You gotta believe. Why believe me, Jesus is saying. C.S. Lewis summarizes this. The need to respond We need to respond to him in his book, Mere Christianity, which I strongly commend. If you've never read it, read it. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, speaking of Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Church, Jesus is saying to you, why believe me? Because I am who I say I am. Because I am the beloved son. I am the perfect image and likeness of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one Lord who is himself love. The only one who has ever been able to love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love neighbor fully as myself. I am the son of David. I am Lord of all. Jesus said in John 11, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says these words, do you believe this? Let's stand.